I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's remarkable guest is Jonah Berger. Jonah is an associate professor of marketing at Wharton. He received his BA from Stanford in human judgment and decision making, and his PhD from Stanford in marketing. He is the author of three books Contagious Why Things Catch On, Invisible Influence The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, and most recently, The Catalyst How to Change Anyone's Mind. He also has a fairly current iPhone. In this episode, We'll cover topics such as overcoming the inertia of the status quo bias, making what you can sell versus selling what you can make, removing barriers versus bludgeoning your way. If you're interested in introducing new products, convincing people to wear a mask, or motivating your children, you'll find this episode remarkably helpful. Have you upgraded your iPhone yet? Oh my God, that story is funny. (laughs) The funny part about it is soon after this book uh, came out, I actually uh, had to get a new phone and I went through the same process, terrible process that I had for the story I told in in the book. So I am just as much a a Luddite and just as much susceptible to status quo bias as I was when I wrote it in the book. (laughs) Maybe you can explain the situation and the status quo bias because people may be wondering, why is Guy asking you if you got a new iPhone? Yeah. So the status quo bias, if, if you've never heard the, the term before, you, you can probably intuit what it is from, from just the way it's described, but we all have a bias for the status quo. So we tend to buy the same products, use the same services. Uh, we tend to go on the same places for vacation, at least we did pre-COVID. Um, businesses tend to stick with the projects and initiatives they've done in the past and be loath or scared to start new ones. Um, even in the case of political candidates, if someone's an incumbent or seems like an incumbent, people tend to be more favorable towards that person than if they seem like they have not been the, the incumbent uh, in the past. And so in terms of my, my iPhone journey, um, I think all of us have had some version of this. But this happened to me a few years ago and I was thinking about buying uh, a new phone. So I, I think I at the time had something like an iPhone 3 maybe or an iPhone 4, something like that, whatever it might have been. Uh, and I loved it. It worked really well. It fit in my pocket. It did everything I needed it uh, to do. And so you know, it was a great uh, phone. But then after a few iOS updates or whatever it might be, I started getting little messages saying, hey, you know, your phone is almost out of memory. And so I said, okay, well, you know, no, no problem. I like my phone. Let me just delete some stuff, right? So I went in and so none of us, we never delete things these days. So I went in, I sort of pruned those old videos, those two minute videos of your pocket that we all have sitting on our, <laughs> sitting on our phone. I got rid of some old stuff I didn't need. And that, that was great. Got rid of some old apps. That was fine. So a couple months went by um, and it seemed like it was going to be okay. And then I got another message saying, hey, you know, you're out of space. And so then I was a little bit more stuck, right? I'd gotten rid of the easy stuff. And so now I had to decide which photos do I want to save, which things do I want to keep. I tried downloading some of it to get it off the phone. And I thought that would be enough. It wasn't enough. A couple of weeks went by uh, and soon I was still out of space. And I was out of space so much so, for example, that I couldn't download the new version of iOS that had come out. Uh, and so there were a bunch of new features, new different things, no big deal, uh, except that meant I couldn't download the new apps from various airlines. Uh, and this was a few years ago now when all of us were uh, flying all the time. And so that meant that I couldn't actually use the apps for the boarding pass. I had to print them out. No big deal, but not the easiest thing. And so I was still stuck and, and wedded to my old phone. So people kept saying, hey, why don't you check out a new, why don't you check out a new phone? So I did. Right? So I went to the Apple store and I looked at it and obviously it's beautiful in the store. It looks wonderful. 
better camera, more memory, all these different things. But as I picked it up, it was bigger than my existing phone. Not just a little bit bigger, but a lot bigger. And I was sitting there going, man, you know, I love all these features, but I don't like the size. Maybe I'll just wait until something comes out that's more like my existing phone, right? I was essentially hoping I would never have to get a new phone. I could just stick with what I had uh, already. And it wasn't until I actually missed a flight because I didn't have my boarding pass and I couldn't check in and I got to the airport and I didn't have what I needed that I went ahead and finally bought uh, a new phone. And you would think that would be the end of the story, right? I buy a new phone, I open it up, I use it, that's great. I actually waited, I'm not exactly sure the number of months, but I think between three to six months before I actually went ahead and used this new phone. I literally had it in the box, in the saran wrap, in my house, because I was still hoping that there would be some way that I could use either my old phone or a new version of my old phone, basically the same size uh, of the old phone. And again, this is ridiculous, right? All of you are probably laughing at me saying, why does he, why? this guy's supposed to be an expert on something. He's stuck in an old phone. How could he be an expert on anything? It points out is the status quo bias that we all have. We are all wedded to the stuff that we're doing already. We like the stuff that we're doing already. And when we think about new things, we focus not only on the upsides, but also on the downsides. In the case of that new phone, for example, there were lots of upsides, right? Lots of good new features of that phone, but there were also some downsides. It's not as small uh, as the old phone was. Uh, it costs some money to buy a new phone. There are all these switching costs, and costs are often weighed more than the benefits. In fact, some research shows that the losses of change, the costs of change, the challenge of change often are weighed two times more uh, than the benefits uh, of change. And so this is just one of the reasons change is really hard. We're wedded. We're attached to the stuff that we're doing already. And so whether we're trying to get someone to change their mind, whether we're trying to get someone to change the product they buy, whether we're trying to get someone to change what they do at the office, it's tough to get them to move because they're stuck in, in what they've been doing already. And what forced your hand? Was it, did you burn your bridge or did you <laughs> figure out the opportunity costs were too large? You know, it ended up being essentially just that I, I couldn't, I couldn't go forward anymore. Right. I mean, I had this phone that was broken in different ways and I couldn't use it. And I, I finally just forced myself to do it. And what's so interesting, by the way, and it was personally interesting for me in writing this book is once you do that new thing, it takes a little while to get used to it. But once you've gotten used to it, it's impossible to go back because in some sense, the new thing becomes the status quo. And, and I talk about this a little bit with free shipping uh, and why free shipping is so powerful. But part of the reason why is before uh, you order something, the status quo is you know, what you're doing already. Let's say you're looking for a new jacket, for example. You have a jacket ready, but you're looking for a better one. Your old one has holes in it or it's not working anymore, whatever it might be. So the status quo is the old thing. You're looking for something new. There's so many choices out there. How do I know which one of them I should actually go with? And what ends up being tough, you end up wanting to stick with that old one. But you order one, let's say, free shipping, great. It comes to the house. It gets in your house. Let's say it has a generous return policy, uh, two months, three months, a year, whatever it might be. Once it's in your house, once it's already there, it's more more effort to get rid of it and having it almost becomes the status quo. And so a lot of what I talk about in the book is how can we lower that barrier to trial, how we can make it easier for people to experience something because we can take advantage of the status quo if we can make the status quo the new thing, right? If we give them free shipping or we give them free returns and we get them to try it and it gets in their house, once it's there, they're going to say, oh, wow, well, now this thing is the status quo. I couldn't imagine it otherwise, right? I was used to the iPhone 3, but now whenever I had the 6 or whatever it was, I've used it for two weeks. Now I can't imagine going back. And so whether it's freemium or free shipping or other ways of lowering the barrier to trial, these are powerful ways to sort of use the status quo bias, but shift the way that it works. So 
possession is nine tenths of influence. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it is a trial. I would say, right? Trial is nine. Once you get used to something, it's really hard to move away to to something else, right? And and so this is why freemium is so uh, effective. Free trials are so effective. But sort of, you know, we spend so much money on traditional advertising, trying to convince people that something is great, when other routes, like whether it's word of mouth or literally just giving it to them to try, can be so much more effective. Because once we get it in their hands, if it's good, they'll see that it's good and they'll want to end up using it. This is a slight jog, but I'm doing it just because I'm an author and I'm interested. Weren't you and your publisher a little leery of over-promising the title being change anyone's mind? Anyone is a that's a big claim. Who was in favor of the title? Who was against it? Who was arguing or was good. there any yeah. argument? Yeah, good. So I'd say a couple things. So first of all, I'm an academic at heart and academics have some good qualities and have some bad qualities. Uh, our good or bad quality in this case is we tend not to like to overpromise. We tend to want to stick to the facts and, and the data. And so they said, the publisher actually suggested how to change anyone's mind. And I was like, wow, that would be a great title. <laughs> But I don't know. Can we have a title like that? It sounds a little bit like I'm a, you know, a used car salesman or I'm promising something. Are we going to be able to deliver on that? And they said, well, let's see if we can deliver on that. And once we get to the place where we've seen whether we can deliver on that, we can figure it out. And so one thing I, I really enjoyed about this book is I'm an academic. I teach in a marketing department. I'm you know, well familiar with the literature on influence and marketing and management and sociology and psychology. But the publisher made some suggestions and said, hey, look, why don't you check out some more unusual ways of, of changing minds, right? Whether it's parenting experts, whether it's hostage negotiators, substance abuse counselors, looking at people who change folks' minds in politics. So got a Democrat to become a Republican, a Republican to become a Democrat. I talked to a cantor who actually got uh, a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, so one of these high up folks in a very uh, racist organization to change his mind, renounce the Ku Klux Klan, uh, and years later actually become Jewish after being a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And so once the dust settled, once we had sort of, we, mainly I, had talked to these different people and explored some of these principles, I don't mean to suggest that we can change anyone's mind in a minute. That I don't think is realistic. I don't think you can change anyone's mind in a minute. But do I think with the right tools um, and the right approaches uh, and a little bit of time? Yes, I do think you can change uh, anyone's mind. I use an analogy in the book. I talk about pebbles and boulders. And some things we're trying to change are pebbles. They require some effort. They do. But it's pretty easy to lift up a pebble. It's pretty easy to move a pebble. You need enough proof, enough evidence, enough things moving in the right direction. But it's not that difficult to move. Other things are boulders, right? Other things are going to take a, a lot of time. Other things are going to take a, a bit of effort. It doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but it means it's going to take more than a couple minutes. If you, you look at some of these people who did change their mind or change others' minds, and you see it is possible. If we take the right approaches, if we use the right strategies, and as the book talks about at a high level, if we stop pushing and instead we think about removing the barriers to change, then I think we can really change anyone's mind. It seems to me that the basis of not only your book, but many of your, much of your wisdom, the gospel according to Jonah, <laughs> it's the process starts with understanding others. And do you believe that you are at all at odds with Robert Cialdini, who Cialdini never really talks about understanding? 
his principles are of reciprocity and commitment and consistency, social proof, authority, liking, scarcity. Now, you do have overlap in some of those six principles, but is there a fundamental difference here or is it just shades of gray, different emphasis? Yeah, I mean, I would say a couple of things. So first of all, I, I love Cialdini's work. I probably wouldn't be a behavioral scientist today if it wasn't for some of the great work that he's done over many years. Influence is an amazing book. I still love that book. Still on my bookshelf. Wonderful book. We have learned a little bit, though, since that book uh, came out. And in 10, 15, 20 years, I hope someone else is on your show telling people how my stuff was useful. But we've learned a little bit since then as well. You know marketing, uh, obviously, quite well. I think Part of this approach of starting with understanding is really where marketing as a discipline has has come to. I teach the marketing core at the Wharton School. Um, And so, you know, I teach a third of the incoming MBAs about the modern marketing and what it is. And many of them, if you ask them, think that marketing is advertising and sales, right? It's about pushing people and figuring out how to get them to do something they wouldn't want to do otherwise. And I think one of the main take-homes of the course is don't just sell what you can make, but make what you can sell. Right? And what does that mean? Making what you can sell means we'll start by figuring out what people want and then design products and services and ideas that meet those needs. Right? Start with the customer. Put the customer in the center, customer centricity, all, all those different things that, that modern marketing talks about. I think this book is a version uh, of that in the mind-changing the mind changing space. And nobody talks about this better than hostage negotiators. They say, hey, novice negotiators come in and the first thing you want to do is jump to influence. Right? Come out with your hands up do what I want. If I just tell you what I want and what I need, you'll do it. And that notion of just pushing, if I just push a little bit harder, people will change is what many of us have. Many of us think is is right. You know, we want to push a chair. Or we want to move a chair. How should we move it? We should push it, right? Pushing a chair is a great way to get a chair to go. But when it comes to changing people's minds, when it comes to moving people, there's a problem. People aren't chairs, right? When we push chairs, go. When we push people, they push back. They dig in their heels. They put up their anti-persuasion radar. They do all the things that we now know that they do to avoid us and avoid being persuaded. And so pushing works sometimes, but what I think is even more effective is starting with them, starting with understanding, right? Negotiators talk a lot about don't start with you and what you want. Start with them and what they want, where they are, what they need, why they're there in the first place. The more you understand about somebody, whether they're a bank robber or someone trying to commit suicide, the more you understand about them and the problems they're wrestling with, the more you can help them. But along the way, help yourself as well. And so that's really what I'm trying to highlight here. Not pushing, but identifying barriers by starting with understanding, removing those barriers, and so making change both easier but also more likely. So to understand, you have to listen. So tell me how to listen. <laughs> I, I learned a little bit about listening through writing this book. And I, I wouldn't say I'm the world's best listener or even in uh, the top 10% of best listeners, but I've talked to some folks who are, and, and they talk about a lot of different strategies, both for, for two things. One, for actually listening, but also showing people that you're listening, right? Because part of what listening is actually hearing what someone else is saying, understanding, attending, understanding what they said, but it's also showing them that you listen. Because the more you show them that you listened, the more they're going to trust you. 
Um, and everything from asking questions and asking the right type of questions. Though. So you have to be careful. If you say why, many of us, you know, why, are you, why do you want to know that? Why do you care about that? Why is that important? Why can seem aggressive and why can seem a little bit negative, particularly something like why do you feel that way suggests that there's something wrong with you that why do you feel that way? Whereas saying something like, oh, really interesting. Could you tell me a little more? I want to make sure I understand. Right. That, by the way, that's putting the onus on me. I want to make sure I understand. Nothing on you. It's not your fault, not your problem. I need to make sure I understand. Tell me more is supportive, showing I'm interested. I care. I want to learn more. People love to talk about themselves. They love to answer questions. But as they're doing that, you're learning more about where they are, what they need, and how you can help them, uh, and how you can meet their needs. Um, there, there are lots of other, other things as well. We're doing some research actually now on the power of pausing in conversation. So this is quite interesting. But um, if you're explaining something and you pause for a moment, listeners tend to do something in particular. Listeners tend to go, "Uh uh-huh, okay, yeah, or something like that, right? They tend to assent. They tend to basically say implicitly, tell me more. Interesting. Tell me more. You pause. Tell me more. Let me fill in that blank with something that shows that that I'm listening. But by doing that, they're implicitly agreeing to what you said, right? They're saying, yeah, uh-huh, okay, going along with what you said, which actually at the end of the interaction makes them more likely to find what you said helpful and makes them more likely to like you. We've looked at hundreds of customer service calls, for example, and find that customer service agents that pause more cause customers to assent more, to essentially agree, fill in those pauses, and as a result, be more satisfied at the end of the interaction. And so there are lots of different things. I actually have a whole appendix in the book from asking the right type of questions and mimicry, pausing, um, and using other types of linguistic devices. But there's lots of opportunities to both be better listeners and I think show that we're better uh, listeners. And I, I think that's a really powerful tool. I think, again, you know, when we think about influence, when we think about persuasion, we think a lot about the outcome we want to achieve. We think a lot less about why that person hasn't done it already. And this is true of myself as you know, and anybody as well. If I may interject here, One of the ways that you can impress people with your attentiveness and listening skills is to take notes. The Remarkable People podcast is sponsored by the Remarkable Tablet Company. This is a tablet with more or less a single purpose, taking notes. It has the feel of an old-fashioned pencil, not a stylus on glass. And I think that when people see you working on a phone, tablet, or computer, They assume you're answering email, but when they see you with a tablet and pencil taking notes, they assume you're listening and that you have a high regard for what they're saying. So just Google Remarkable and you'll see pages and pages of stories about the Remarkable tablet. End of commercial. Oh, why did the boss say no? Why did the customer say no? Why didn't they want to go along? People often say, I don't really know. And if you don't know why they don't want to do something, it's really hard to get them to come around, right? It's not about providing more information or or tricking them. It's really about figuring out, well, what is that thing that's standing in the way between the two of you reaching the goals that you both have and how by starting with understanding, you you can get there. This is kind of an aside also, but I've now done about 60 podcast episodes and I have disciplined myself maybe... It's a negative now that you mention it, but I'd I'd be listening to the interviewer and I would say, yep, 
Yep. Okay. Okay. I got it. Yep. Great. You know, I would give the positive reinforcement because I really did agree or like it. Yeah. But then when I edit the podcast, there's so many places where I'm stepping <laughs> over the person that I've trained myself to shut up. Yeah. But then I may be limiting. So one of the beauties of recording a podcast where we're both seeing each other is you can see me nodding, but I don't have to edit out the nod because it doesn't make a sound. But anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is, it, is a, it is a great example. So the, I mean, think about what Obama did, for example. He was amazing at this, right? He would say, look, the thing we need to understand it, and he would use the use really pauses to draw attention uh, as well. And so I think there are many uh, linguistic devices that are powerful, and pausing is certainly one of them. <laughs> so, what are the most common barriers to change? Yeah, sure. So maybe just taking a step back for a second. So and we we talked a little bit about this already, but I think the the main idea of the book is a very simple one. Whenever we try to change minds, whenever we try to change behavior, whenever we try to change action, whether we're a marketer or a salesperson trying to change a customer or a client's mind, whether we're uh, a boss uh, trying to change an organization, an employee trying to change a boss's mind, whether we're a startup trying to change an industry, whether we're a nonprofit changing the world, whether we're a parent trying to change our, our kid's mind we often default to some version of pushing. We often say, look, let me add facts or reasons or information. If I just make one more presentation, one more phone call, if I just try to convince someone why what I'm suggesting is a good idea, they'll come uh, around. And, and again, it's sort of clear why we think that, right? Going back to the analogy with the chair, pushing in the physical world is a great way to get things uh, to move, but it doesn't work when it comes to people. And, and so instead, there's a, a nice sort of comparison to be made with chemistry. Um, some of your listeners may have a background in chemistry and, and may remember that change in chemistry is really hard, right? It often takes uh, you know millions, uh, thousands, if not millions of years for carbon to change into diamonds or plant matter to change into oil. And so chemists often add temperature and pressure. They squeeze things really hard. They heat them up in an effort to change them. But there are a special set of substances uh, that make change happen faster and easier, not by increasing the temperature, not by increasing the pressure, but by doing something subtly and importantly different. They lower the barrier to change. They essentially make the same amount of change happen with less energy, not more, and these things are called catalysts. And so it turns out the same approach is equally powerful in the social world, not pushing, not adding more temperature, more pressure, more reasons, more facts, more figures, but figure out what the barriers are to change, what the obstacles to change are, uh, and mitigating them. There are five key barriers that I talk about in, in the book. And I think what was neat to me is doing these interviews both with folks in psychology and sociology and looking at the literature but also folks like hostage negotiators or substance abuse counselors or parenting experts, many people were saying similar things using different language. And so that's really where these five barriers came from, identifying parallels that would come up again and again in different spaces, something that a top-selling salesperson would do that a parenting expert also thought was a good idea, something that a substance abuse counselor that works in that space, but also works trying to get a team motivated to take action. And so these five barriers can be put into a word, which is the word reduce. And that's exactly what great catalysts do. They don't push. They reduce the barriers to change. And so the R is reactance. The E is endowment. 
The D is distance, the U is uncertainty, and the C is corroborating evidence. And so each of these is a barrier. They don't all come up every time we're trying to change something, but often multiple barriers come up. And the goal is very simple, right? Once we understand these barriers, how can we be better at identifying them in the worlds around us? Identifying the barriers, we're so focused on pushing, understanding what those barriers are, seeing them when they appear, and then learning how to mitigate them. How would you explain a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk who they don't exactly start with listening and building trust, and yet they are absolutely persuasive, influential, change masters, you know, all the good stuff. So what explains their success? So, so I would say a couple things, and I love this question. I, I often get a question like this from my MBA students. We teach about the importance of customer research and customer insight, and some student always says, yeah, Steve Jobs didn't care what the customer thinks. Steve Jobs told the customer uh, what to think. Or someone says, you know, uh, Henry Ford, isn't Henry Ford famous for saying, if you ask the customer what they want in a car, they'd say a faster horse. Mm-hmm. And so you don't want to ask people what, what they want. And I think a, a few things are true. So first of all, Steve Jobs very successful guy. You know, Elon Musk, very successful guy. Not everything those guys did, though, turned into gold. Both companies had examples of successes, but also examples of failures. And we tend to remember the successes and we tend to say, oh, someone's very persuasive because they had some successes. We tend to forget the times that they failed or maybe they were less uh, persuasive. They get less attention. But then I think that the second thing I would say is I'm not saying we always want to ask people what they want, because people may not be able to tell us what they want. But part of what good market research is about, good customer insight work is about, part of what asking the right questions is about, is discovering what people want, even if they can't tell you. Because Henry Ford is right. If you had asked people what they wanted from a, you know, a horse, they might have said a faster horse from, from a car. But at the same time, I bet if you followed people's pain points, you did some qualitative research, you followed people around, you looked at what a, they annoyed them about riding a horse. Or same thing if you looked at the iPhone, for example. You know, if you looked at what people's pain points are, if you looked, wow, you know, people are carrying around digital cameras and they're carrying around these little paper reminder things, little calendars, and they're also carrying around phones, they probably probably don't realize that it'd be great not to have to carry around all three of them because it's outside the realm of what they think could be true. But by observing them, I can realize that they would really enjoy uh, something like this. They would really find it, it valuable. You know, same thing. People say, oh, Google knows exactly what customers want. They have had a lot of successes, but Google Glass didn't do so well. That was an example of sort of a solution in search of a problem. It was a great piece of technology. I bet in 15, 20 years, we will be using some version of that technology. But at the time, it was too far ahead of what people actually wanted uh, and needed. And so I'm still a big believer in starting with the customer. I'm not saying, hey, ask them what they want. I'm saying figure out what they want, whether that involves asking them or whether that involves using other ways to determine even if they would have a hard time telling you. So in asking or figuring out what customers want, I think the first practical stumbling point is sampling. So who do you ask and who do you listen to and how do you know if they're representing the lunatic fringe 
or Main Street. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, uh, I, I do a lot of work with market research firms and I do a, a lot of consulting projects where we have to collect information about customers. There's certainly easy ways to get random samples uh, of your customer base or stratified samples of your customer base. But anytime I start a project, I just start with friends and family, qualitative sort of work. So whether I'm working with uh, a company on a new phone uh, or I'm working with a dry cleaner or I'm working with someone who's launching a new B2B service, I just start by talking to some customers and understand what they're doing at the moment. I'm working on an advisory board at the moment of a, a startup that does something in the housing space, the home buying space. And so I just started talking to some people about their home buying journey. Are they a representative sample? Certainly not, right? They're not. They're a convenient sample of people that I happen to be connected to, but they're a good place to begin collecting insights and start a more quantitative program of, of research. And so I think, you know, there are lots of easy ways to random sample and when doing a big, more quantitative focused thing, it's definitely important to do that. But at the outset, even a non-random sample is great for those qualitative insights that can be helpful to start out. I think the most useful sample to start with is one's wife. <laughs> or, <laughs> husband Peter Lynch theory. Yeah, or husband is no, a baby. No, no, not husband. Only wife, only woman. <laughs> but we won't go down that path. I think women are better judges. But anyway. Certainly more empathetic and they're certainly, they certainly start more with understanding than men often do. Yeah, that's definitely true. So the R in reduces reactants. And my interpretation of that, it's about feeling that freedom is lost or threatened is a very negative thing. And yet I look at Australia and I look at New Zealand and I say, well, you know, in Australia, you're required to vote. You cannot own a gun. You have to get your kids vaccinated or you don't get this child care allowance. Why aren't Australians and New Zealanders reacting that way that their freedom is lost or threatened? Yeah. A lot of this depends on what the default is and whether something is – once you legislate something, there's no question that people in general are going to follow the rules most of the time. The, the challenge is that most of us can't legislate things. We can't legislate that the boss adopt our new project. We can't legislate that consumer buys our, our product. I don't think most of us sit there going, oh man, my freedoms are being impinged because every year I have to take my car uh, to the shop to make sure it passes an inspection or every two years, whatever it might be. We just say, oh, that's the way it is. I have to take my car in for, for inspection. But the challenge is that when we can't legislate something, how do we change minds? And, and I think actually a good example of this comes from a very different domain. Maine. Uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with these little uh, cubes made by Tide called Tide Pods. But I, I think the story is quite illustrative uh, about them. So a number of years ago, Tide, uh, owned by Procter & Gamble, wants to make laundry easier to do. Uh, and so it turns out there are a few problems with laundry. You don't know how much detergent to add. Some get sticky on the counter. You'd actually be better if someone at the beginning, someone in the middle, someone at the end of the laundry. So they solve these problems. They come up with these little packets called Tide Pods. They're multicolored. They're beautiful. You toss them in the laundry. They solve all your problems. They're great. And so they spend $100 million on marketing, launching these things. They help to take a big chunk of the over billion dollar laundry industry. They launch them. 
they're doing well, but then they hit a speed bump. They hit a problem, which is that people are eating them. And you, you might be sitting there going, wait a second, people are eating laundry pods? Aren't they filled with chemicals? Yes, they are. But yes, people are, are eating them. There was a satirical article in The Onion. There was a funny video on College Humor. Uh, and suddenly, mostly young people, mostly teenagers are challenging one another to eat Tide Pods. It's called the Tide Pod Challenge. Now, imagine you're a Tide executive uh, in this situation. You're sitting there going, what should I do? Um, it's obvious people shouldn't be eating these, but just in case, let's tell them not to. So they make an announcement, don't eat Tide Pods. And in case it's not enough, they hire a celebrity, Rob Gronk Gronkowski, to shoot a public service announcement saying, don't eat Tide Pods, never eat them, no, no, no. They think this will be the end of it. Okay, So they post this content online. But if you look at the data, you see something quite interesting. So you look at the search data for searches for the Tide Pod Challenge over time. See, it's going along. It's increasing a little bit. Tide makes their announcement. And the hope is that will decrease interest in the Tide Pod Challenge, but that's not what happens. It actually increases, and not by a little, but by a lot. It goes up over 400% uh, in the next few weeks. And it's not just parents wondering what their kids are up to. Visits to poison control go up as well uh, in the next few weeks. A number of people coming into poison control are more than two years uh, prior. Essentially, a warning becomes a recommendation. Telling people not to do something makes them more likely to do it. And as you were saying, this has some resonance with the sort of world World we're living in at the moment, where many people have been told, don't uh, go out, uh, stay in your home, wear a mask, don't do this, don't do that. Restaurants need to close, bars need to close, you need to act in this particular way. And many people have said, no, I don't want to do that. And what's interesting is it's not even clear that if you had asked them before you had told them what to do, they would have cared that much. But it was because you told them what to do that, as you nicely said, they, they feel like their freedom is being impinged on. Right? We all like to feel we have freedom and control over our lives. Why did I make a certain choice? Why did I engage a certain action? I did it because I wanted to. I bought this product. I used this service. I wore a mask. I bought groceries. I went out to dinner because I wanted to do it. But as soon as someone else, whether that person is a spouse, a colleague, a boss, tells us what to do, tries to tell us, suggest to us what to do, suddenly now we're not sure whether we're making that choice because we want to or they're making it for us. And the more we feel like they're making it for us, the more we don't want to do it anymore. Right? This is the essence of reactance. Essentially, uh, a negative feeling when we feel like someone's trying to persuade us. We almost have like an ingrained anti-persuasion radar, almost like a missile defense system that goes off when we feel like someone's trying to change uh, our mind. We avoid the message, we ignore it, or even worse, we counter-argue. Sure, we seem like we're sitting there. Sure, we seem like we're listening, but we're not. We're really thinking about all the reasons why what someone's suggesting is a bad idea, right? They're sitting listening to your pitch or your proposal going, oh, that's too expensive. It's going to be difficult to integrate. It's not going to work for these various reasons. And so almost like a high school debate team member, they poke and they prod till it, it comes crumbling down. And so I think the key question then is how can we change minds, not by pushing people, but by getting them to persuade themselves, not by trying to sell them, but by getting them to buy in. And so I'm, I'm happy to talk about some of the ways to do that. But the core insight, I think, there is how do we reduce reactance, not by telling people what to do, but by allowing for freedom and autonomy, allowing them to feel like they've participated in the process, that they're making a choice, that they're getting to decide what happens. The more they feel like it's up to them, the more they feel like they participated, the happier they'll be in, in going along. Every day in America, everybody who gets in a car puts on a seatbelt. No problem. Now, maybe it took 20 years to get to that point, but looking at it just today, everybody gets in a car, puts on a seatbelt, no problem. Half the people 
refuse to put on a mask. Why is it any different? Yeah, I think part of the challenge is they feel like uh, their liberties are being impinged on. Right? This is up to me, and you were telling me what to do. We don't like that, right? I mean, by the way, if you look at the government's playbook for this, the health organization's playbook, it's the same thing that organizations have been doing for decades that, that hasn't been working, right? Um, you know, if you want someone to do something, tell them to do it. Wear a condom. If you don't want to do something, don't want them to do something, tell them not to. Don't drink and drive. Don't do this. Wear a bike helmet. Wear a safety belt. Don't do drugs. And that does work for some people some of the time, particularly if they feel like they've come to that decision on their own. If, if I'm sitting there going, man, I'm wearing a safety belt because I want to protect protect myself, then I'm going to do it. If I feel like I'm doing it though because you told me to do it, not only am I not going to be interested in doing it, but I, I may not do it at, at all. And so I wrote a piece near the beginning of the pandemic for Harvard Business Review about how to get people to, to wear masks and other things. And one thing I talked about was a strategy that is very much always used in the book, which is called highlighting a gap. And there's a great example of this in Thailand. I'll, I'll give you the Thai example, and then I'll get to the US in a second. But there's an anti-smoking campaign in Thailand. So they want people to quit smoking. Obviously, people who are smoking don't want to quit smoking. Um, and so they're trying to figure out what to do. They're a quit line. There's people are hoping they'll call the quit line. Not enough people are calling. And so they end up doing something interesting. They end up going up to smokers on the street. And they ask smokers, can I have a light? Uh, and this is something that happens to smokers all the time, right? If, if you're a smoker, you know, other smokers come up to you, they ask you if you have a light, you say, yes, of course, you're happy to. But this time, smokers say no. In fact, almost all, if not all, the smokers say no. And they say no, even though it's a simple request, because the person who asks is a kid. So imagine an eight to 10-year-old kid walking up to a smoker saying, hey, can I have a light? And the smoker says, no way. Of course, I'm not going to give you a light, right? You're a kid. Don't you want to go run and play? Don't you know smoking causes emphysema, causes lung cancer, all these different things? Uh, you know, you're too young to do this. It's a bad idea. Don't don't do it. And what's great, by the way, is no one knows more about the dangers of smoking than smokers. It's not an information problem. Smokers know that smoking is is dangerous. And so at the end of this interaction, the kid goes, "Okay, thanks anyway," and hands the smoker a slip of paper. And the smoker sort of unfurls the slip of paper, and in it is a small note that says, "You worry about me." but not yourself. Um, but if you're interested in quitting, think about calling th this quit line. You, you wouldn't tell me to smoke, yet you're smoking. Is that something that you want to do? And this campaign is hugely successful. 40% increase in calls to the quit line. Videos of it go viral on the web. Millions of people view it around the world. But I think why it works is not only very clever, but it also has a lot to say to the current mask debate and, and the stuff that's out there at the moment. And, and the reason why it works uh, is it's based on a simple idea uh, in psychology, which is we like to be consistent. And this is actually something you know, Cialdini talks about in, in Influence, right? Mm -hmm. We want to be consistent. If I say I care about the environment, I better recycle. If I say I care about a certain sports team, I better watch their games. If I say smoking is bad, I better not smoke. I want my attitudes and my actions to line up. I want those two things to be consistent. When they don't, cognitive dissonance occurs and I do work to resolve that dissonance. I have to bring my attitudes and my actions in line. And so that's exactly what happened with the smokers. The kid highlighted for the smokers, hey, you told me not to smoke, but you're smoking. Do you want to do something about that? They didn't say you have to, but they said, do you want to do something about that? And so the smokers are sitting there with a choice. They can either tell the kid you should smoke or they can stop smoking, which is exactly what 40% of them did. That message highlighted a gap. It didn't tell the smokers what to do. It highlighted a gap between what the smokers were doing and what they would recommend to someone else and asked them if they wanted to do something about it. And so we could imagine the same thing with masks or vaccine or really anything in this space. Rather than telling people, hey, 
wear a mask, which people say, don't tread on me. These are my civil liberties. You know, I don't, I don't want to do it. Imagine if you asked someone a question, you said, hey, think about your elderly parent. If you have elderly grandparents, think about your young child. If you have young children, would you want them to wear a mask? Would you want the people around them to wear a mask? Would you want them to get the vaccine if it comes out? Right? Um, and most people would stop and say, yeah, I want the people around my elderly parent or grandparent to wear a mask. Yeah, I want them to wear a mask. I want them to be safe. Okay, well, then why aren't you wearing one? Or do you think you should wear one? If you want them to wear one, do you think it's a good idea for you not to wear one? Encouraging them to do the work themselves. And so it's, again, it's not being entirely hands-off. It's not saying do whatever you want. It's guiding them down a journey. It's not forcing them down a particular path. It's not telling them what to do, but it's guiding or shaping their process without making them feel like they have no choice in the matter. But still, can you explain why seatbelts work? <laughs> I haven't looked into seatbelts, so I, I can't tell okay. you how seatbelts how seatbelts came about. I can tell you that there's a I think it's this movie, is it adaptation? This movie where there's a car crash at some point in the movie and the guy goes flying through the front window. And every time I get in a car and I don't think about putting my seatbelt on, I think about that message and I buckle myself in. And so that has certainly uh, worked for me. But I, I think more generally, going to be some set of people that whenever we tell them to do something won't do it. But I think the more we can get people to buy-in, the more we can help people see that the outcome is something they want to reach, the more excited they'll be about doing it. Now, let's move on to E for endowment. How does one calculate the true cost of doing nothing? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about endowment and, and we may not have time maybe for all, all five of the aspects. Of the yeah, okay. so I'll, I'll connect endowment and uncertainty a little bit in case we don't get there. But okay. go back to the idea of me and my phone or go back to really any opportunity to change, right? There are always some costs of action. So keeping my old phone is in some sense costless. It doesn't take more time to learn how to use because I already know how to use it. It doesn't require more money to buy a new phone. New things always have these switching costs, whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's effort, whether it's energy. Buying a new car takes money. Buying a new software program not only takes money, but requires time to figure out how to use it. Even as something as simple as a new phone or a new operating system, a new layout, right? Anytime uh, Microsoft updates my computer, I'm always scared to try to figure out where things are down in drop-down menus. There's a cost uh, of change where people feel like doing nothing, sticking with the status quo, is costless. Right? Oh, it won't cost me anything to use the same phone, to use the same car. Even in the case where we have to pay money to re-up a service, sure, we have to pay money to re-up for the next year, but we don't have to learn how to use that new service from a different company. And so we often feel like doing nothing uh, is costless, whereas doing something, creating a change, requires a, a, a lot of cost. Now, and not only that, but when we think about the cost of change, so whatever it is, the monetary cost, the time cost, the energy cost, when do the costs of change occur and when do the benefits occur? So maybe think about something in your own life. When do the costs of that change happen and when do the benefits happen? So here's a, a case in point. So it covers a lot of principles. So I need to buy a car. Yep. Let's just take that as an assumption. One could argue, why does anybody need to buy a car? But let's just say I do need to buy a car. I think of myself as of someone who believes in climate change. So yep. to be to not have cognitive dissonance, I should buy an electric car or a hybrid or at least a high mileage car. But I really like fast cars that are noisy, <laughs> which puts that in complete conflict. 
And yeah. I have done extensive fact searches and it's still not clear to me the the total impact of creating lithium batteries and all that. So I swing from buying uh, a Tesla all the way to buying a V8 Mercedes-Benz. So Okay. Yeah. And by the way, <laughs> notice all the work you have to do to change, right? To keep your old car, yes. you don't have to do anything. You already have it. Yeah. Whereas to, to buy a new car, not only have to pay the money, but you have to go to the dealership. You have to try it. You have to do all this online research. And so all these costs are upfront. They're now Whereas the benefits of change are often later. Yes, you might have a, the car might be better than your existing car, but you're not going to find out till you pay all those upfront costs. And not only that, this is called the cost-benefit timing gap. Costs are upfront, benefits are later, but costs are often certain, benefits are uncertain. Right? You know that it's going to cost at least a certain amount of money to buy this car. You know it's going to take at least a certain amount of time to figure it out. The benefits, maybe the car will be better than what you have, but you're not completely sure. And so this stymies a lot of action. We sit with what we're doing ready because we have the status quo bias, because we feel like our existing car, our existing phone, our existing whatever it might be is not very costly, whereas doing something new is very cost heavy and the costs uh, are upfront. And so one way to, to overcome this is to ease endowment, just to help people realize that sticking with what you're doing already isn't as costless uh, as you might seem. And it turns out there's some very nice research on this when it comes to injuries. So if you ask people, hey, what do you think causes more pain, a minor injury or a major one? A minor one being, I don't know, you have um, your lower back tweaks every once in a while. You have an old shoulder injury from swimming or playing basketball or your, your pinky hurts once in a while. A major injury would be you shatter your kneecap, you have a heart attack, you break your leg, whatever it might be. And so most people would say, of course, major injuries are much more painful. Then minor ones, God, you know, if you break your leg, that would be a huge, immense amount of pain. Whereas you have these minor injuries, it, it doesn't hurt that much. And that intuition makes a lot of sense, but it's actually wrong because minor injuries hurt a lot more than major ones. Why? Because major ones do hurt a lot right away, but you get them fixed. If you have a major injury, you get a cast put on your leg, you get a stent put in um, wherever you need that stent. You do the work, you go to physical therapy, you get surgery, you do whatever you do to fix the problem. But when you have a minor injury, you never get the problem fixed, right? Because that lower back pain is never enough to be above the threshold to drive action. So you just sit with it. You never get it fixed, you never get it solved, but it stays there forever. And so if you think about over time, taking the area under the curve, it causes a lot more pain overall. And I think this is a great analogy for change because if something was terrible, people would have changed already. If your car is so bad that you can't drive it, you're going to buy a new car if you need a car. But if your car is just a little bit old or it doesn't get the most gas mileage or it tends to be a, a little bit of a, you know, expensive to repair, but it's never so expensive that it gets above the threshold, you never get it fixed. It's a minor injury, not a major one. It's like, you know, if, if you have, I don't know, a couple flies in your house once in a while, you don't call an exterminator. If your house is infested with cockroaches, you call them right away because you want to get rid of the cockroaches. And because that problem's never above the threshold, it doesn't get the action to get it to change. So part of what we need to do with change agents to ease that endowment is to make people realize it's not costless. Make people realize it's not actually as safe as they think to do nothing. Make people realize that it is a major injury, not a minor one. If it's a minor one, it's going to cause them a lot of pain. And so one way to do this is highlight the cost uh, of an action. And there's an example from the book that I, I find quite quite 
valuable, at least in my own life. I had a cousin who would write his emails at the bottom of his emails, regards Charles every time he writes, writes an email. And I was like, look, every time you write that, it takes five or 10 seconds. Why don't you just add that to an email signature? And he goes, look, you know, I don't really know how to use email signatures and it'll take minutes to figure that out. And it's just not worth it. It only takes a couple seconds, right? I'm just going to stick with it. And so I had tried many things to get him to change. He wasn't, wasn't willing to change. And so eventually I asked him a question, right? Ask, don't tell. And I said, hey, you know, uh, how many emails do you write a day? I don't know, 40 emails, 50 emails, whatever it is. How many emails do you write a week? I don't know, 200, 300 emails. How much time do you spend on each email writing your email signature? He goes, I don't know, five seconds, 10 seconds. So I said, okay, how much time each week do you spend writing email signatures? And he thinks about it for a moment and then he goes to Google and types in how to automate an email signature because for him, each time was a minor problem. It was a minor injury. It wasn't that big of a deal. It was a couple of flies in your house. It isn't a big deal to type it, but aggregating across all those times, it's actually a major injury. It's actually your house being infested with cockroaches. And so part of the job of a change agent, again, it's not to tell people, hey, do this, but to help them realize it's not costless to do nothing. It would actually be in your best interest to take some action. Let me show you how that's the case uh, and encourage you to move in the right direction. Again, not by telling you, but by helping you come to it on, on your own. I have a text expansion paradigm where to say no to something, to say yes to something. You know, I have a four or five stock answers where I just type three letters and the whole thing explodes out. <laughs> That's well, great. In the distance section, I found it very interesting that there's a theory that exposure to the truth increases misperceptions. How can that be? How does that work? Yeah, there was a great study that a friend of mine at Duke University did. His name is Chris Bale, Christopher Bale. And so he's a sociologist and he was interested in polarization, still is interested in political polarization. How can we reduce polarization? Something obviously all of us want to do. And there's this theory out there, if we just give people more information, uh, they'll come around. If we just expose them to what the other side thinks, they'll come around. And same, by the way, in, in research on misperception, right? If we give people access to the truth, uh, they'll come around. If we just give them the right information, they'll change. And so he did this study uh, on Twitter where he had people, he paid people actually to follow information from the other side. So Democrats followed Republican, Republicans followed Democrats. He followed up with them months later to see how their attitudes changed. And he hoped that this would reduce polarization. Many people said, look, if we were just exposed to the other side, there are these filter bubbles. If we just step outside our bubbles, if we just reach across the aisle, if we just learn what the other side is thinking, people will change. Um, and that's a great theory, uh, except that's not what he found. He found that exposing people to information from the other side had the opposite effect. Giving Democrats information about Republicans, what Republicans believed, made them actually more liberal. And same thing happened for Republicans. Giving them information about the liberal beliefs made them even more conservative. And the reason why is, is we have this thing called the confirmation bias. We look for information and we filter information based on our existing beliefs. We don't just take something for its face value. We don't just take it as true. We say, how does this relate to what I think already? And if it's close to where we are already, if it's within what, what we call the zone of acceptance, uh, right around where we are at the moment, we're willing to believe it. 
if you want to put people on a football field, right? Think about a political spectrum, put them on a football field, five or 10 yards in either direction, they're willing to consider that information. It may not be where they are at the moment, but they're willing to listen to it. But 20, 30, 40 yards in either direction, they're probably not willing to listen to it. It falls in what's called the region of rejection. It's so far from where people are currently that they aren't even willing to listen to the possibility uh, of being persuaded. And so that's exactly what happens with false information. Some set of people, you tell them information is false and they'll listen to you, right? That uh, it's within the zone of acceptance. It's within the realm of possibility. They'll listen to you. But for people that's so far away from where they are currently, not only will they not listen, it'll actually push them in the opposite direction or cause a, a backfiring sort of uh, effect. So that's to say that people in the zone of rejection should either be prioritized lower ignored, or at least they need a completely different approach from people who are at least in the zone of acceptance. Yeah. So, so one thing I talk about in you know, how, to, how to mitigate this, I talk about a few things. So one is starting with the movable middle, right? And this is, I think, traditional sort of startup 101. But when you're launching a new product or service, start with the people for which your product or service is a painkiller, not a vitamin. Start for the people for whom you know they can't live without you. They need you. You're a need to have, not a nice to have. Start with them. Once they find out you exist, you don't have to convince them that you're great. They've been they have the problem already. They know they're looking for a solution. Once you provide them with the solution, they'll take it. Only then, once you've moved through them, then move to some of the people that are a little bit harder. The people that this is a nice to have. The people that it's a vitamin. You know, it's something they like, but they they don't necessarily need. And so, certainly, one option is to start with the people that are close by already. Right? That that your thing falls in that zone of acceptance. But even when you're going after someone for whom what you're suggesting is in that region of rejection, then it's about asking for less than asking for more. Rather than asking for big change right away, it's about chunking the change down into smaller chunks and moving people step by step in, in the right direction. I was talking to a, a doctor who was trying to get a guy to lose weight. He was a trucker and was drinking three liters of Mountain Dew a day. Was stuck in a truck all day driving a long haul truck, three liters of Mountain Dew, huge amounts of sugar, way overbeat, way obese. And the tendency is, like with many of us, is to tell someone, don't do it. I know you're drinking three liters of Mountain Dew, quick cold turkey, which is great if you're somebody who doesn't care about Mountain Dew or is you know, probably pretty athletic already. But if you drink three liters a day, you're probably not willing to quit cold turkey. It's probably in that region of rejection, unwilling to consider. And so instead, what she did is she said, look, I know you love Mountain Dew. I'm not going to tell you not to drink any of it. But rather than drinking three liters a day, can you just drink two instead? He grumbled. He didn't want to do it. Finally said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And so he came back a couple weeks or month later and was actually able to do it. Went down from three to two. Then she said, great, you did a really good job. Now go from two to one. Grumbled again. Didn't want to do it. Uh, was eventually able to do it. Came back again. She said, great, now go from uh, one to zero. And eventually he did. And he lost a huge amount of weight along the way because she chunked the change. Right? She took a big ask, which is usually something people don't want to say yes to, broke it down into smaller chunks and moved him in the right direction so that now his region of rejection changes, his latitude of acceptance changes. He's more willing to consider that information because now it's not so far away. How, how would you do a drug intervention. <laughs> so you're talking about what I talked about in the last chapter of the book. Yeah. And I think, by the way, most of us uh, are never, hopefully won't have to be in the challenging situation of trying to get someone uh, to, to quit drugs. But one of the reasons interventions work so well uh, is they provide multiple sources of proof at the same point in time. So there's an old adage, if someone says, if one person says you have a tail, uh, you laugh at them. And that, that makes a lot of sense, right? If someone has a tail, you probably don't have a tail, so you laugh at them. But if five people 
uh, tell you that you have a tail, you turn around to take a, a look. Why? Well, if five people say the same thing, maybe they're not so crazy, right? Maybe I'm I'm actually the one that, that doesn't have it. And this is one reason that interventions are so powerful, right? It's not just uh, multiple people saying something. It's not just one person saying something, but it's multiple people saying the same thing at the same time. If you're an addict, you've probably heard that you have a problem already, but you've probably heard of one person. It's easy to die, say, oh, that person's crazy. That person's wrong. No, no way. I'm not going to listen to them. But when all of your closest friends and family members are saying the same thing at the same point in time, it's really hard to dismiss them all as crazy, just like the people that said that you have a tail. And one thing I talk a lot about in that chapter is how can we provide corroborating evidence? How can we give people multiple sources of proof in a short period of time and use that to drive action? And this is really important for startups uh, and organizations like that as well. When we're trying to get a product to catch on, often we think, great, let me cover the landscape. Everyone is hearing about me. But the challenge with doing something like that is then most people only hear about you once from one person. And particularly when we're trying to create big change, trying to get people to do something very new, they often need to hear from multiple people uh, multiple times to drive them to take action. They need multiple sources of proof to provide enough proof uh, to drive them to change their behavior. And so in those situations, it's less like a sprinkler where we spread a little bit of water out everywhere and more and more of a, a fire hose approach. We really pour a bunch of water into one place. And once people have started doing something in that place, whether it's a physical place or a demographic uh, group or a segment of the market, once we we've covered that segment and gotten big buy in there, then move to some of the adjoining segments, concentrate our resources rather than spreading them out. Okay. And this is my favorite story in the book is what are the lessons of seeds of peace? One of the things I thought a lot about uh, in writing this book was, can we change anyone's mind? And so I was on the lookout for examples of situations that were difficult. And I would call the Israeli-Palestinian conflict one of the most difficult, intractable uh, situations out there. Not necessarily the most. I'm sure any listener can think about one that's even worse, but definitely one of the most challenging ones. You know, both sides highly heated, going back decades worth of conflict, many lives lost, many people made worse off, very hard to get people not only to change, but to even see the other side as people as individuals, to be open to the possibility of connecting with them. But it turns out that there is a situation uh, that has enabled Palestinians and Israelis to become friends. And it's this program called Seeds of Peace. Uh, and Seeds of Peace is a camp that happens in, uh, in northeastern United States uh, every summer, I believe. And it may even happen uh, now uh, multiple times in the year, other places around the world as well. But it basically brings people together, both from uh, Israeli side and Palestinian side, and encourages them to have conversations. Encourages them to sleep in the same bunk, to eat dinner at the same table, um, and doesn't necessarily drive head on into uh, changing minds but really focuses more on creating a bridge between these two uh, sets of sets of individuals. And I talked to someone who talks about it very eloquently. And she says, look, I didn't trust the other side. I didn't want to believe in them. But we start doing these exercises where, you know, I'm on a ropes course and I'm 40 feet above the ground. And the only way I can see what I need to do next is trusting someone who's on the other side. And I have this choice. Am I going to trust them or am I not? And I really don't have much of an option. Or, you know, I'm eating dinner with these people and I'm realizing, wow, they like the same food that I do. They use the same shampoo that I do. And suddenly at the end of this two weeks or month long of camp, do they sing Kumbaya? No, they don't all sing Kumbaya and they don't all agree. But what they start doing is seeing the other side as real people that are just like them. 
that are complicated. They start to see the issues as more nuanced. No one's pushing them. They're removing the barriers to change. They're asking them rather than telling them. They are shrinking the distance, whereas once seem very far apart. You have the sham shampoo in common. Maybe we're not actually that different. Remove some of the uncertainty by allowing them to interact in a safe environment. It provides that corroborating evidence by having them interact multiple times. It's an amazing program that really showcases the power uh, of removing barriers, not telling people what to do, not pushing them, but showing that you know if we understand what the barriers to change are and we understand how to mitigate them, we can really change anything. So now you are empowered with a bag of tips and tricks to go out and influence and persuade people from Jonah Berger. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. My thanks to Jeff C. and Peg Fitzpatrick, who have made this a remarkably influential and persuasive podcast. For their safety, do you think your kids should wear a mask? Should they avoid crowds? Should they get vaccinated? Do you think that the people you and your family around should wear masks, maintain a large social distance, and get vaccinated? If you do, shouldn't you wear a mask? Shouldn't you avoid crowds? And shouldn't you get vaccinated? I'm all about reducing cognitive dissonance. Mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.